0: Yale
1: Podcast
0: Network. Welcome to Chewing the Fat, the Yale Sustainable Food Program's podcast that looks at the big, complicated world of food and agriculture. I'm your podcast host, Erwin Lee. This week, we look into flavor. Our podcast manager, Ashia Johnny chats in the studio with Arielle Johnson, flavor scientist and director's fellow at MIT Media Lab. Ariel was also the former resident scientist at the world-acclaimed Copenhagen restaurant Noma. Listen in as she shares more about the crazy world of flavor.
2: Welcome, Ariel. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks so much for being here. So for those of us who are unfamiliar with the term, could you tell us what is a flavor
1: scientist? So my formal training is in flavor chemistry. Um, I studied that at uh, the University of California at Davis. To do that, I really focused on uh, what molecules we perceive as flavor. So uh, flavor is made up of smell and taste uh, with information from uh, the other three senses, sight, hearing and touch. Um, But smell and taste are the most important ones. Smell and taste are both our only chemical senses, so they are senses that interface with molecules from the environment directly. So to study flavor or flavor chemistry, the two, the two essential parts of that are studying the molecules in food that we're perceiving as flavor, and studying how we're perceiving those. So, like, what intensities of flavors they cause us to perceive. But even in the course of doing that work, and especially since then, um, I've well, first couldn't stop thinking about, and now continue to try to think about and pursue and integrate information from a lot of other types of fields besides chemistry that has a big bearing on flavor. So whether that's uh, the sort of cultural importance and impacts the flavor or the uh, ecological and evolutionary things that lead to flavor molecules being created or how flavor is used and transformed and thought about in the kitchen. So uh, when I say flavor scientist, that tries to incorporate uh, the many different areas besides just chemistry that, that impact and relate to flavor. So
2: I guess off of that, what what does flavor mean to you and how is like your perception of flavor changed like throughout your work?
1: Yeah, I mean, so I I have a bachelor's degree in chemistry. So even when I was doing that, uh, I was also interested in working on food. Then when I was going to graduate school, I was also doing a degree in basically applied analytical chemistry, uh, agricultural and environmental chemistry. So my, my approach and interest in flavor really started as a chemist, so interested in just the huge range of what flavor molecules there are, how, how things like wine or uh, flowers and herbs or other, other edible things or even cocktails um, produce and contain molecules. But I really think, as I studied as I studied flavor more, in much the same way that food is a field and an endeavor that really draws on and encompasses a vast swaths of human activity, um, flavor is really similar. So um, it often gets reduced to what what molecules are around or what sort of perceptions are being created in the brain. I've been thinking a lot about lately the importance of uh what it means that we are able to sense flavor probably the most important component of flavor is smell uh when you're when you're eating something and experiencing anything besides sweet sour salty bitter umami or spicy you're experiencing that through aroma and Aroma is in the history of Western philosophy, and science has really been sort of denigrated and downgraded among the senses. So even going back to like Greek natural philosophy, um, there was this idea that that smell was like the basest and least important and least like human of the senses. And you see that like echoed a lot in nineteenth century science. but as it turns out, when you look genetically um, at the at the genes that we use to sense smell, um, we use about two percent of our genome to code for olfactory receptors, which is a vast amount of genetic information to be maintaining. Um, you know, which would suggest that there's there is a reason that we can. Smell all of these things. so then flavor becomes not just about a bunch of molecules that you can smell, but like what what role those molecules might have played in in our you know millions of years of evolution into humans. Um, we also know that flavor flavor and smell are Processed very intimately with emotion and memory, and also you know from anthropology that that foods and flavors are an important way that we define who we are, and both in a cultural way and culturally like interface with our surroundings. So I don't want to say that flavor connects absolutely everything, but it is a surprising connector of, of many uh, very interesting and fundamental ways that we are human and that we interact with the world. So your work
2: seems to blur the boundaries between the laboratory and the kitchen. What does it mean for you to work in a restaurant setting as a scientist?
1: I've collaborated with, a re- with restaurants for a long time, like while I've also been training to be and being a scientist. Uh, for me, one of, the biggest, one of the biggest things that's important to me about that is, well, when you're Training as a scientist, at least in the U.S., um, you don't really get any, any formal training in most places in like the philosophy or the history of science. So you know, a really important thing to bear in mind about, about both science and technology is that they are fairly neutral tools, but that the questions that we use them to answer are obviously hugely reflective of our own values and politics and culture. I think a lot of scientists don't want to think about that and, and like to like to feel that what they're doing is completely objective. Um, so as I got more into trying to answer questions and uh, just think about what questions should be asked about food, I was noticing that that chefs and restaurateurs and and other people working in food production had these this amazing depth of knowledge about food that wasn't really reflected in the scientific literature and like questions that no one in my like chemistry department was or like the food science department was asking or interested in entertaining but that were actually like really quite fascinating so i enjoy getting that diversity of perspective from from working with chefs but um for me also Going in the other direction, there's like a huge a huge wealth of, of knowledge that has been developed over the last hundred years or so about how, how food works on a molecular and chemical and biological level that's not necessarily accessible or legible to to non experts, but can like really, really help cooking in an intuitive way. So I, I also have done a lot of work a lot of my work at noma was listening listening to questions or problems that came up and then figuring out if somewhere someone somewhere in the scientific literature had ever answered like a similar question and then figuring out how to translate that into practice wow that's
2: really cool <laughs> is that like is that work that you enjoy doing like the translating
1: is oh it yeah <laughs> it's i mean it is challenging i mean it's challenging to explain stuff not using jargon but i think not to slavishly quote richard Feynman, but i believe it was him who said that if you can't uh explain something at a level that a freshman can understand you don't really understand it so um rather selfishly it also has greatly clarified my own thinking having having to translate things in accessible ways yeah
2: Yeah. So when you're when you're in the kitchen, are you usually just collaborating with other chefs or are there other scientists there? Are there other people in your field?
1: So I will preface this by saying that uh, most of the work that I've done and even some of the spaces that I've worked in, like I or the people I'm working with have like made up as we go along Uh, while at NOMA. We occasionally had interns that had kind of a science or technical background, but for the most part, it was just chefs that we were working with. I think, as far as I know, I might have been the only like PhD scientist employed full time at a restaurant. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, it's a very different kind of work, obviously. But at places like um, the Nordic Food Lab, also in Copenhagen. Uh, The Basque Culinary Center, I've done a bit of work with them. You have a bit more of a mix of people, still largely with chef's backgrounds, but also like with experience in nutrition or microbiology and... Other things like that. Um, At Harvard, too. Yeah. A lot of uh, for a while I was doing collaborating with uh, two scientists in the systems biology department who are microbiologists, uh, Rachel Dutton and Ben Wolfe. And they had done a lot of work with Momofuku in New York, who are also interested in the microbiology of fermentation. A a short version of that long answer (laughs) is that it tends to be very ad hoc and, Mm -hmm. and driven by just personal interest and people reaching out to each other. Very cool. Very cool.
2: Um, So on that note, uh, in your piece, Know Thy Scientist, you wrote, science and scientists are as yet poorly utilized sources of information that, when directed correctly, can become invaluable partners to chefs in the effort to understand and hone their craft. Could you talk a little bit about a trickle down effect? Because I know that some of the institutes that you're working at are a little bit up there. So Mm -hmm. how are you seeing this new field of kind of flavor scientists trickling down to more mainstream restaurants.
1: One way that you can really see is that, not that every chef talks about this, but Uh, If you mention a reaction called the Maillard reaction to a chef, they're more likely to know what you're talking about than not. Um, So this is the Maillard reaction was discovered in like the early 20th century, maybe the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, And this is a reaction between amino acids and sugars that creates... Uh, all of the brown colors and um, browned and roasted and toasted flavors in basically any browned food. So, like, the aroma of baked bread comes from the Maillard reaction, Um, roasted chicken, cocoa beans, uh, Mm. roast beef, coffee, basically anything you cook to the point where it, it, it browns. You know, 20 years ago, it was, like, not really like a common thing to talk about this, but understanding that the Maillard reaction is a thing, that you need protein that has like given off some free amino acids and some sugars, um, that it happens at a high temperature, it tends to happen less with water around, and it happens less when you have acid around. is a pretty like Basic, basic principle, but it enables you to either create a lot of these like delicious brown flavors if you want them, or if you're trying to avoid that in in a kitchen context, you can cook something at a lower temperature or reduce the amount of sugars or protein that's in it or ensure that it's in a moist environment so the temperature never gets that high. So a lot of these things are techniques that that have been, like, passed through kitchen lore anyway, but understanding just a little bit about the, like, molecular mechanisms behind what's happening allows for a lot finer control, even just in the moment of cooking. Very cool.
2: Okay, so I just want to change, like, shift a little bit sure. uh, to just talking a little bit more broadly about your work. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was wondering if you had any insight, how can the scientific view of food and flavor augment our appreciation for different cuisines Mm. rather than erase tradition and culture?
1: I'm glad you asked that because I think that's super important and, you know, also reflects that like the development of food science throughout the 20th and into the 21st century has Generally, been used to like standardize and uniformize and um, make cuisine less local and less reflective of like people and history um, and more reflective of what's easy to engineer. But I think something to bear in mind is that a super traditional dish like a Doro wat or a homemade kimchi or uh, a tortilla has way more science going on than like a precision engineered bottle of vitamin water or or some other standardized thing. Um, just because anytime you have the combination of human activity on the natural world, there's just like more things going on. So if you strip them away to make them easier to engineer, I think there's actually less science going on. So something like a, uh, a very traditional kimchi. Kimchi you, is a korean pickle it can actually be made out of a huge variety of vegetables probably the most familiar version is cabbage kimchi and there's all these uh cabbage kimchi there's there's salt involved obviously there's often chili but not always often garlic but not always um and the cabbage gets packed into jars and it ferments and turns into a like lactic acid pickle So it's definitely possible to take a dish like kimchi and um, try to absolutely standardize the cabbage and then, like, sterilize the cabbage and take a known... Strain of lactic acid bacteria and inoculate it in a way that feels very scientific and technical, but in a traditional way. Population of lactic acid bacteria on the surface of the raw cabbage varies hugely based on like where it was grown, uh, what the weather conditions were, uh, like who has handled it, how it's been stored. The the water content and the type of salt that you use can also have a huge impact on the flavor, but that's because it impacts like what strains of lactic acid bacteria can grow and thrive and how they interact with each other and, like, what sort of synergistic effects they have, uh, how fast they ferment, uh, and then the whole, like, huge variety of additional ingredients, whether that's, like, daikon or pear or chili paste or uh, dried shrimp or dried fish, each bring a gigantic and chaotic Chaotic in the like technical sense of small changes leading to like big differences after a process has happened. They bring impacts to the process that that have a, a significant and measurable and like sensorially significant result. All of which boils down to many series of biological and chemical and natural processes that is possible to to measure, but uh, is actually much richer. Not just culturally, but also like chemically and microbially. It's definitely harder but possible to to do science in a way that that appreciates and builds in and looks at uh, complexity in that way. amazing. So just thinking a little bit about sustainably
2: and responsibly grown meat and produce, what does flavor science have to say about this new push? for more organic food? uh, And where does it support or counter ideas like organic tastes better?
1: Mm, I will say that one thing that science is not very good at is answering aesthetic questions. In fact, I I might say that you should not use science at all to try to answer (laughs) aesthetic questions. And if someone is telling you that it can, they're probably trying to sell you something. So in terms of, I mean, I, I, I get asked questions like that a lot, like, why, do, like, why does science say this thing is better? And um, I usually tend to push back a little bit and say, like, well, what do you mean by better? And often it's definitely possible, like, better might be, like, I like it more because it is richer tasting, or it has a higher concentration of protein or polyphenolic molecules or something like that organic agriculture itself is so complex and um many many different practices fall under the like rubric and name of of organic and sustainable that it is i don't think really possible to to make a broad statement using science i mean some things that we do know are that especially in And plants are a good example um, that most of the flavors in plants, especially like leafy plants and herbal plants that we like, were actually not evolved or intended by the plant to be delicious to humans. Um, So if you take an herb like rosemary as an example, or basil. Those plants or plants like them, since of course we have affected their evolution, existed for millions of years before they were humans and had various metabolic pathways to produce the molecules that we p- perceive as flavor. But for those plants, most of those molecules were were evolved as some kind of stress response or adaptation. So a lot of the like herbal and citrus aromas in spices and... And herbs are actually a natural bug repellent. Um, they can also uh, act as antifungal molecules. They can help the plant adapt to drought and protect itself from ultraviolet light. All of which are are stressful. So, in a in a very very simplified sense, a more stressed plant, as long as it's not so stressed that it dies, <laughs> tends to be a more flavorful plant that can actually you know turn into too much flavor sometimes or some of these molecules can can become bitter at high concentrations so it's possible to have a technically extremely highly flavored but not delicious plant. I think there are there are a lot of ways that organic and sustainably grown plants and animals will literally produce more flavor. If you also look at the types, the the subspecies and strains of, of fruits and vegetables and animals, uh, that are used in like very intensive systems, they tend to be, have been bred over successive generations to meet certain parameters. And those parameters are usually uh, like a short growing time and a high yield at, at harvest or at culling. And uh, in in the process of optimizing for those things, generally the biochemical processes that produce flavor are cast aside or, or just disappear from disappear or like greatly downshifted in those organisms so so it's actually so one part of it can be the growing method but then also the like types of organisms that we put through the growing method that is so cool (laughs) i i knew nothing about that (laughs) (laughs) wow
2: stress plants taste better (laughs) yeah
1: yeah um i mean stress plants can also be like well, actually, I, I, I'd been working on this a little bit at MIT because we were interested in, I had access to some, like, controlled growth chambers. Um, so I was like, well, why don't we, like, look up some of the stresses that that have been correlated in the literature for, like, increases in volatile output, which translates into, like, more flavor molecules, um, and then just try to, like, find an optimum dose. So by, we were growing basil plants and shining different doses of ultraviolet light, on them so like in a in a like shipping container style like vertical agriculture system you tend to optimize for lights that like increase biomass growth so like why would you stress your plants cuz then you like lower your yield but so we added ultraviolet light and for for some of the flavor molecules so like this was a basil can have some like clove notes in it some sort of like more herbal and piney notes and some uh, sort of licorice flavors the clove like molecule that's eugenol when we shone ultraviolet light on the basil for 24 hours a day increased like nine hundred (laughs) and fifty percent wow yeah it was almost like too much in some of them
2: that is so cool (laughs) um we we only have a few minutes okay okay Um, so there were a couple questions that Mm -hmm. i wanted to ask you um a little bit more personally about what's what's coming up for you Mm -hmm. um you have a book coming out in yeah. 2021. Can yeah. you give us a little info about that? Yeah,
1: well, so I've um, been working on the proposal for this. I actually only recently got the deal, so I'm writing it. It's a book that came out of a lot of like thinking and talking to both the chefs that I was working with and some academics. We kept having a lot of questions about like, okay, we know that like this thing makes flavor, but like, what's the best way to do it? I had a, a chef collaborator that I was working with that was really interested in eating insects and a different different like edible insects that was that was possible to eat and the culinary potential of this. Um, and he pulled up this paper about ant pheromones. So pheromones are chemicals that organisms use to communicate with each other, like nonverbally. So he was looking through this ant pheromone paper, and I like took a glance at it and was like, "Oh, why are you reading about like herbal?" flavor molecules. He's like, I'm not. I'm reading about ant pheromones. I'm like, well, these are also produced by, like, basil and lavender and lemongrass. he's like, but how would I know that? Like, I don't know these molecule names. So the book that I'm writing is going to be called Flavorama, The Unbridled Science of Flavor and How to Get It to Work for You. And it's basically going to be a crash course in... What flavor is, uh, what flavor molecules are, how flavor molecules are produced on a on a molecular level, but also a, a more like cultural and anthropological look about how how cultures use different and similar flavors in their in their recipes, and how all of that information can be used to be more creative and more like fluid and intuitive in the kitchen. Um, I think a lot of. There's a lot of great food and science books out there. There's also sometimes a tendency to um, to want to use science to make cooking more, quote, unquote, rational. And what I've really enjoyed is using science to make cooking like more creative and non-rational and like something no one's ever thought of before. So this book is going to be about that, about flavor.
2: Very cool. Um, So make sure to look out for (laughs) the in 2021. (laughs) Fall
1: 2021.
2: (laughs) So we are going to wrap up. Thank you so much for coming. But on Chewing the Fat, we like to end by having guests challenge particular myths about food that can be confusing or frustrating. Anything come to mind that you'd like to talk about?
1: I would like to challenge the myth that paleolithic humans ate what people call the paleo diet today.
2: Okay. Okay. (laughs) Let's talk more about that because I have a couple friends who are, like, really into the paleo thing. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, so paleolithic humans lived in, like, many, many, many different environments, so all of their diets would be pretty non-uniform and drastically different from each other. I would also... One big tenet of the paleo diet is avoiding like starches and carbohydrates generally, um, with sort of the argument that humans weren't evolved to deal with them because they weren't eating a lot of like grains in their evolutionary history. I would I would challenge that or that humans aren't evolutionarily adapted to it certainly. The relationship between humans and grains is very complicated, and the relationship between humans, grains, and health is very complicated. But humans produce amylase, the uh, enzyme that breaks down starches in their saliva. Um, so uh, we've evolved enough that that is important for us to be able to produce. Humans also mutated between ten and 20,000 years ago to be able to digest dairy. Uh, certain populations of humans, not all humans today have that. So many human adults are lactose intolerant. Furthermore, I actually was just hearing about this recently. There was a paper in PNAS this summer uh, where they found a fourteen thousand year old breadcrumb. Um, So the idea, the idea with this is that humans were gathering wild seeds. uh, So like the before they were even breeding cereals, wild seeds and grinding them and turning them into bread uh, before before there was any sort of grain based agriculture. So it's more complicated than. We have been led to believe.
0: From the Yale Sustainable Food Program, this has been Chewing the Fat. To hear more from Ariel, you can follow her on Instagram or Twitter at Johnson or visit arieljohnson.com. Flavorama, the unbridled science of flavor and how to make it work for you, comes out in fall 2021. This episode was produced by myself. Ashia Johnny, Josh Kimmelman, and Thomas Hagen. Mixing by Ryan McAvoy of the Yale Broadcast Studio. Music by Eddie Joe, Antonio, and Louis Felice. Program support by Jacqueline Mono, Jeremy Oldfield, and Mark Bomford. If anything said today gave you something to chew on, leave us a comment or email us at sustainablefood at yale.edu. We're always excited to connect with our audience near and far. For now, wishing you goodbye and good eats.